Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmott, and I'm joined by my co-host, Richard LaDuke. In this part two, we're going to conclude the discussion around the translation of the place. So, Garrett, where where did you want to pick off from where we left? Well, there's, uh, I think maybe one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is that early on, apparently, anyway, according to the sources we have, even while the translation was going on, there were people who were trying to provide alternative explanations of where the words were coming from, right? I mean, obviously, the the people that doubt that it's from God, they don't really want to say, you know, that there are words appearing on it, and this is a, a, a translation from God. At the same time, you know, I will say it's very interesting that um, when the pages are lost, when the 116 pages are lost, the Lord tells us in Doctrine and Covenant section 10 that the actual plan of those people who stole the pages is that Joseph would be able to produce the same words again, the exact same words, meaning their plan was that if they stole these pages, they would have to alter the words on them. Because Joseph was going to produce the exact same words, which which could only be a miracle. I mean, even today, if you have a highly literate person who's trying to copy, you know, pages out of the Bible, they're going to make two or three errors on every page. I mean, maybe they're little, maybe they'll leave a word out, maybe they'll add a comma where they shouldn't or, or whatever, a misspelling. The reality is that's for a very highly literate person who's really trying hard not to make any errors in in copying something. Now we're talking about Joseph Smith, who's not what we would call highly literate, right? He's well known to not be, as you know, as Emma, you know, so famously says he could, you know, scarcely write a, a, a well-worded letter, right? Let alone the, the the Book of Mormon. One of the reasons why Emma knows that the text is clearly coming from God is she knows Joseph, and. Uh, Joseph is saying words in the translation that he then has to ask her what they mean. So clearly, the, the, the translation's beyond himself. Well, um, early on, people are trying to provide alternative explanations of this supposedly or seemingly miraculous process, as they would put it. And one of my favorite stories actually comes from Martin Harris who explains that they, they, they're translating and um, then they go down to the river to skip some rocks, which is apparently how you you know take a load off of translating as you go down to a river and skip rocks. I mean, um, not, not, not a lot of uh, uh, 21st century leisure time uh, in the 19th century. I mean, it's, uh, you know, well, we're done plowing those 40 acres. Let's go look at the river for a little while. Okay. You know, I mean, th- this is what they're doing for their, their time off. Well, while they're skipping rocks, Martin Harris finds a stone that looks very similar 
to that separate seer stone that Joseph Smith is using. And he formulates a plan. He's already had people claiming that, well, you haven't, you haven't seen the plates yet, have you, Martin? Of course Martin Harris hasn't seen the plates. No one's seen the plates yet because Joseph hasn't been allowed to show them to anyone yet in the early portion of translation. Well, um, Joseph uh, you know, still keeps them under wraps, and, and Martin Harris has had people say to him, well, Joseph just has he has a manuscript in his hat. He has a bunch of writing. He has pages in the bottom of his hat. And that's the reason why he's looking into his hat. It's not about that stone. He's already got a book in his hat and he's just reading it to you. That's the reason why, uh, you know, it sounds like he's reading something off those stones. So Martin Harris, you know, surreptitiously sneaks back into the house, takes the stone that looks that he found that looks like the seer stone and he swaps them out. He puts his river rock that he found in in the hat, and with the idea being, aha, you know, now we'll now we'll find out. And when Joseph comes back into uh, into the house and he goes to translate, he can't, and says that it's all dark uh, in the hat as he's looking in, that it's not shining in the darkness, essentially the way that we we talked about the translation taking place. So you can see early on, there are attempts to try to provide an alternative explanation of where these, that this text came from. Now, while we have that Martin Harris explanation that the stones are essential to the process, right? I mean, basically what he's trying to demonstrate is that these really are holy stones. They really are central to the process. That someone might say, well, you know, Joseph's just, you know, getting this from some other source. Well, he's trying to prove that by swapping the stones out. At the same time, it's not purely a mechanical process. And a story that is much more well known uh, comes from David Whitmer. And I would guess most of the Littners, listeners. Uh, so Littners are members of the Whitmer family that are listening. They're, they're listening Whitmers. <laughs> Okay, that was obviously a, a faux pas, but it, um, it does show how little editing we do in yeah, this podcast. Uh, essentially, zero editing, uh, and uh, you—if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you're already well aware. At least then you have an excuse uh, when you say, "Like, yeah, it's it's not it's not very good." I'm pretty <laughs> sure that they can't afford any editors, and you're right. Anyway, um, it, it's a much more common story about. The spiritual aspect of it, and and this is again from David Whitmer's account. He says, one morning when he was getting ready to continue the translation, something went wrong about the house, and he, this is Joseph, was put out about it. Something that Emma, his wife, had done. Oliver and I went upstairs, and Joseph came up soon after to continue the translation, but he could not do anything. He could not translate a single syllable. He went downstairs out into the orchard and made supplication to the Lord, was gone about an hour came back to the house and asked Emma's forgiveness and then came upstairs where we were and the translation went on all right. He could do nothing save he was humble and faithful. So it, 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 there's two aspects to the translation. And I know that we've kind of focused on some of the more unfamiliar aspects of it. And that is that he's using seer stones and that the way he's using them is he's, he's putting them in a hat to kind of shield out the light so he can see what appears on the stone. 
But there's, there's obviously the other aspect to it. This is not a purely mechanical thing. Only a seer has the ability to read these words. And if you aren't living the life of a seer, well, then you can't read the words. In fact, David Whitmer is going to stress this again in another account. He says um, that there were times that Joseph would, would place the stone in, into the hat but would not be able to translate. He told us that his mind dwelt too much on earthly things. Uh, that's David Whitmer saying that Joseph said that, and that's the reason why he couldn't translate. And quote, when in this condition, he, Joseph, would go out and pray, and when he became sufficiently humble before God, he could then proceed with the translation. So clearly part of this is Joseph's not only being given the gift and power of God to be able to do this, but there's also the aspect of him being worthy and prepared to do it. So you have the mechanical the mechanical aspects of it, for lack of a better term, the use of the devices, whether it's the two stones bound together or the single separate stone, and you have the preparation of Joseph to be able to do it. And both things appear, they have to be present for Joseph to be able to, to translate. Now, as they near the end of, of uh, the translation process, they they have a whole new problem, and that is, how are we going to get this published? Martin Harris has been, uh, from the from the get-go, uh, he, he's been saying, I'll pay for the publication, I'll help you get it published, which is, which is a very important thing. I mean, you might wonder, well, why is it that Joseph, you know, allows Martin Harris to lose the 116 pages, but then still keeps Martin Harris around? Well, at least one of the reasons why is the cost of printing the Book of Mormon. The $3,000 that it's going to cost to print those 5,000 copies, that is 15 times the total value of Joseph Smith's home and farm that he owns in Harmony. And when I say owns, I mean doesn't own. He has bought it, but he can't even make the payments on it. In fact, as he writes in his 1832 history, he he, he bought it from his father-in-law, Isaac Hale, and Isaac Hale is threatening to evict him from his property. You think you have problems with your in-laws. Isaac Hale is threatening to throw his own daughter out of the house that they bought from him um, because uh, Joseph is is late on the payments. I'm sure some of it has to do with, you know, Joseph's gold Bible speculation, which Isaac Hale is not okay with. But at any rate, Joseph just has no possible way of paying for the the printing of the book of Mormon himself. And that, that massive amount of money, you know, it's, it's constantly weighing over his head. I mean, he doesn't have any means himself. And the only person who knows who has means is Martin Harris. Well, as they go to, to get the book printed, the first person they go to is the, the major printer in town. And that's Egbert Grandin. Now, Grandin publishes the Wayne Sentinel, a newspaper there. He has a bookstore in the bottom of his print shop, uh, and he has printed several books. So he's, he's ideal, and he's also apparently one of Martin Harris's friends. So this, you know, it's a great, you know, the connections Martin Harris has, you know, he's in a higher society than, than Joseph is. But at least according to uh, Grandin's brother-in-law, Grandin absolutely refuses to have anything to do with publishing the Book of Mormon. 
And in fact, in his newspaper, he's already made a mockery of the Book of Mormon, the idea that it's being translated. You know, it's pretended that this is going to be put to press in this village soon. I mean, not exactly something that you would say if if you were planning on printing it, right? You probably wouldn't make fun of that it wouldn't get printed when you're the one doing it. That's that's not good marketing, I, at least I'm told. Anyway, um, as, you know, Grandin not only says no, he actually tries to organize Harris's friends in town to prevent him from paying for the Book of Mormon. So Grandin isn't just a passive, you know, you know, naysayer. He is an active participant in trying to stop the work from going forth. So Grandin doesn't seem to be a real option. So they go to the other printer in town. And this is a source that while portions of it were known because it was reprinted in other newspapers, the actual original um, of this from the Palmyra Freeman had, had really been lost for a long time, something that was rediscovered through the work with the Joseph Smith Papers. Anyway, this newspaper is called the Palmyra Freeman. Its editor is a guy by the name of Jonathan Hadley. Now, Hadley is a, a young guy. He's, he's a, you know, he, really he's... A, uh, an amazing, you know, protege of in, in the uh, uh, um, in the printing community, and he has the the rival newspaper in town. You know, I now I know it's going to be hard to believe that you know two competing newspapers might take shots at one another in a little town, but they not only are competing with each other economically, they're competing with each other politically. At the time, there is a, a political movement in the United States called anti-Masonry, which is opposed to the widespread Freemasonry that, that many middle class to, to, to wealthy men participate in. And many people on the lower ends of society see this as kind of a, you know, at, at best, a secret club that gives, you know, favors to those who are part of it and you know will give someone a better rate on a loan and give someone a better price on land because they're another fellow member of this the secret society and at worst are a blasphemous cult that are a, a part of driving people away from proper christianity so masonry is is is, an, is a target and they actually create an anti-masonic party well grandin is pro-masonic he is uh, uh, defends masonry at the very at the very least. He, he actually makes fun of anti masons in his newspaper as being nothing more than a bunch of shrill conspiracy theorists. Well, Hadley, uh, his paper it's called the Freeman as uh, it, it, that's a direct reference to what it is. It's a reference to um, being. Uh, uh, a paper dedicated to to anti masonry, free of the the chains of masonry, right, and the the uh, tentacles of this uh, wide ranging plot as he sees it. So Hadley and Grandin are not just economic rivals, both trying to publish a newspaper in this small town of Palmyra. They're also political rivals, and they actually take shots at each other all the time in their newspaper, constantly. I mean. Grandin has, uh, he has a lot more prestige. He has a lot nicer press. He has much wider circulation. So he doesn't take as many shots at the Freeman as Hadley in the Freeman takes shots at the Wayne Sentinel. He, he makes a lot of attacks on the Wayne Sentinel and, um, and Grandin. And in fact, Hadley will at one point, 
um, uh, 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 you know, claim that the the entire uh, fact that the Book of Mormon's being published by Granin's press, you know, makes Granin very suspect indeed, right? At any rate, after Granin tells them no, they go to this other printer in town, they go to Hadley, and apparently they tell Hadley the entire story of where the gold plates come from and how they publish the plates. Hadley, you know, he's published in his newspaper. He said things like, I can print anything and I can do it for cheaper than the Wayne Sentinel can. Bring it over to me and I can get the best printing and I can get the best type and on and on and on. But I think what he meant was like wedding invitations or like, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I can print anything, but not 5,000 copies of a 600 page book bound in leather. No, not, not that. I mean, like, do you have a brochure for your travel agency that you need me to put out? I mean, so Hadley tells him he can't do it, but he actually sends them to the master printer that he apprenticed under in Rochester. His name's Thurlow Weed. Thurlow Weed, you know, you can look up Thurlow Weed. Um, he, he's actually a, a major player in the early, well, in the anti-Masonic party, he's, he's the founder of it. But then he's also going to be a major player in the early Whig Party and then the founding of the Republican Party later, um, which which doesn't exist yet. Um, but Weed also, um, well, Weed says a lot of things. Uh, uh, Thurlow Weed is a politician. And, and so, again, I know it's going to be hard to believe that a politician might change what they say on the basis of their audience. But imagine a world where a politician is simply saying things in order to try to get votes. It's a different world. The 19th century is not nearly as pure as our world, where politicians are honest and they, they say exactly what they mean. And so Thurlow Weed actually gives multiple accounts of Joseph Smith and Martin Harris showing up, trying to get him to, to, to print the Book of Mormon. My favorite one of these accounts, that is, it's the latest one, it's in his autobiography that he actually dies before it's published. But Thurlow Weed claims that as Joseph's talking to him about the Book of Mormon to try to prove to him how the Book of Mormon was published, that Joseph took the seer stone out right then, took off his hat, placed the seer stone into the hat, and demonstrated translation for him right there in front of him. I have absolutely no idea whether or not that's true. But I like really, really hope that that was true. I mean, it, it would it's awesome if that's the case. But most likely... I mean, look, Thurlow Weed, again, Mormonism is hated in the United States when he's talking about this. And he always tends to talk about his experience with Joseph Smith at a time of, of a, a rising uh, anti-Mormon hatred in the United States, which, again, I know it's hard to believe that a politician would, you know, pick on a, a, a certain hated, you know, group, you know, at a time of political expediency. But again, you have to go back in time to a different world, a world that's, that's so foreign from our own. And, um, we, you know, you know, he very much cast himself as like the, Oh, I told Joseph Smith that I couldn't be a part of this imposture. And I tried to tell Martin Harris, Oh no, you can't have anything to do with this. I mean, he, he lays it on really thick as the great defender of everything in Christendom when he's later looking back on it. But probably his earliest account is the most accurate one. And that's where he says, well, we weren't in the business of printing books at that time. So I sent him somewhere else, which is probably the case. He wasn't in the, in the, the business of printing books. And 
my guess is he still would have been willing to take the $3,000. Give you an idea of how much $3,000 is. It's um, the average daily wage of an American is around a dollar a day. That's what an average laborer makes. It's what Joseph makes, digging ditches and, and putting up fences. Um, so the average American makes around $300 a year. So the cost of printing the Book of Mormon is 10 times that. So if you even put it into similar terminology today, right? I mean, the average American makes, what, $55,000, $60,000 a year. You know, I don't have $600,000 laying around in my back pocket. You know, just, oh, let me get that for you and keep the change. I don't have that. And and so that's, again, why my Martin Harris is so essential. At any rate, Thurlow Weed sends them to another printer. Um, that printer is Elihu Marshall. We don't know very much about Elihu Marshall's interaction with Joseph Smith, but we do know that Joseph comes back down to Palmyra with Elihu Marshall having said that he's going to publish the book. Now, why does that matter? Because where they really wanted to publish the Book of Mormon was in Palmyra. They wanted first to publish it with Grandin. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. They live in Palmyra, so they already have a place to live, first of all. It's expensive to board somewhere else. Rochester is more than a day's journey away. If they're going to publish this book up in Rochester, someone's going to have to stay up in Rochester the entire time. Second of all, for some crazy reason, these guys are worried that people might try to steal pages of this book. As if, in the very recent past, someone had stolen 116 pages of the book. And so the other reason why they want to have it in Palmyra is they desperately want it to be controlled. They want to be able to only take, and in fact, that's what they'll do. They'll only take a couple of pages at a time to the printer because they're so worried about the pages being stolen from, from sad experience that they've already had. So when they come back down to Palmyra, now they have a very different proposition for Grandin. This isn't, hey, we really want to get this published. It's now, look, we're publishing this with or without you. If we have to go to Rochester to publish it, we'll publish it. Much rather publish it here. And so at that, Grandin relents. He relents and says, fine, I'll do it, but I need all the money up front. And, um, and Martin Harris, of course, as you know, um, is commanded by Doctrine and Covenants section 19 to, to sell all of his property that he has in order to pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon, which is what he does. Now, back to our story about Jonathan Hadley. Why does this matter? Why did I even bring up Hadley? Well, when Jonathan Hadley finds out that it's not his buddy up in Rochester, it's not Thurlow Weed, but his arch nemesis, his... his uh, political and economic rival, Grandin, who's going to be publishing the Book of Mormon, Hadley is irate, to say the least. $3,000 are going to pour into his enemy's coffers. And so Hadley does what so many 19th century newspaper people do when they're upset. They take to their newspaper and attack the object of their uh, uh, animosity. And in this case, it's Joseph Smith. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world is Garrett going to read to us from an antagonistic anti-Mormon attack? Because otherwise this wouldn't be fun. No, because this is one of the earliest 
anti-Mormon things that exist. The, the date on this paper is August 11th, 1829. To give you an idea of how early that is, they haven't even typeset the first word of the Book of Mormon yet. Okay, There is almost no other printed accounts of Joseph Smith and the gold plates at all. There are a few things that say, oh, it's pretended that Joseph Smith has found a gold Bible and, and, and things like that. But there's no account of those events that's been published anywhere. Hadley can't steal that account from some other newspaper and print it in his own because there is no other account. And so one of the things you get out of this, because it's so early, is how does a very early non-believer take this account of the gold plates and the translation? Now, as Latter-day Saints, we're accustomed to thinking about the Book of Mormon as being this wildly you know, popular book that's read by millions of people and it's the basis of belief of everyone. Well, this is August of 1829. There aren't any Mormons. There's no church. We're still almost a year away from the church even being founded. There aren't dozens and dozens and dozens of believers. There's like five people who believe you know, that aren't named Smith. And one of them is Martin Harris. And it's like every other week, Martin Harris, maybe, you know, so, so there's no threat from quote unquote Mormonism. You know, later in Kirtland, as hundreds of people are joining the church, there's a real threat there. When their sister or your, or, or your brother joins the church, there's a real threat there. In early Palmyra, where Joseph Smith had so much opposition to even having the plates. Nobody listened to him. No one believed him. And he had to flee to Harmony to actually do the translation to Pennsylvania. There's no fear here that hundreds of people are joining Mormonism. And so without that fear, what you end up having is, interestingly, a far more accurate account of the things that took place. So I'm going to share that with you to, to help you understand. How did people initially understand? Now, now, caveat all this, Jonathan Hadley is mad. He is angry and he has a biting sarcasm that, you know, you know, he could get his own comedy central, you know, uh, you know, show going. I mean, he is, he is sarcastic and he's angry and that's going to come out. As you know, I'll, I'll stop to give some commentary. So he titles his article attacking Joseph Smith, Golden Bible, right? This is what these early antagonists would say. You know, it. you don't ever find any place where Latter-day Saints call it that. It's very funny. It's always an antagonistic claim. Another thing, if you're ever reading anything that refers to Joseph Smith as Joe, it's an antagonistic source. Period. End of story. Full stop. I can't think of a single... Latter-day Saint source, a pro-Latter-day Saint source that that uses the the term Joe to describe Joseph Smith. Whenever you see Joe, it's someone attempting to be derisive of him by by using that, you know, the the nickname and the shortened name because they don't want to give him the the honor of his actual name. There's, you know, some essential information for your 19th century reading. At any rate, this is what Jonathan Hackley says. 
The greatest piece of superstition that's ever come within the sphere of our knowledge is one that has for some time passed and still occupies the attention of a few superstitious and bigoted individuals in this quarter. Now, in the 19th century, the term bigoted was a way of describing someone who was uneducated, uh, uh, someone who was stupid, essentially, for lack of a better term. It meant, you know, a bumpkin, basically. So only superstitious and uneducated people believe this. I mean... The term bigoted has a much different connotation today. I mean, it's someone who is, who, uh, is, you know, racist or sexist or, 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 you know, has, you know, so it, it also means stupid today, obviously, but for a different reason, uh, in, in, in Hadley's time, it's more of a terminology of someone who's uneducated. Only an uneducated person would believe this, this is essentially what he's saying. It is generally known and spoken of as the golden Bible. Its proselytes give the following account of it. In the fall of 1827, a person by the name of Joseph Smith of Manchester, Ontario County, reported that he'd been visited in a dream by the Spirit of the Almighty and informed that in a certain hill in that town was deposited this golden Bible containing an ancient record of divine nature and origin. After having been thrice thus visited, as he states, now you'll start noticing Hadley, as he tells the story, is a little worried that his readers will think that he believes this. So he will continually put into his article, this is what he said at least, right? Because he, because he doesn't want you to think that he believes it. I'm just reporting. I don't believe this. I'm just reporting, right? After having been thrice thus visited, as he states, he proceeded to the spot and the Bible was found together with a huge pair of spectacles. Now notice the terminology Hadley's using, right? Joseph Smith calls the stones that he finds spectacles. Oliver Cowdery in that early Shaker account calls the stones spectacles. And in this 1829 account that is coming from a conversation with Joseph Smith and can't come from anywhere else because nothing else has been published yet, he calls them spectacles. That's clearly the terminology Joseph Smith's using to describe these stones. Back to Hadley. He had been directed, however, not to let any mortal being examine them under no less penalty than instant death. They were therefore nicely wrapped up and excluded from the vulgar gaze of poor, wicked mortals. He's laying it on really thick here. You can tell the sarcasm's coming out. But even despite the sarcasm, listen to what Hadley says next. It was said that the leaves of the Bible were plates of gold, about eight inches long, six inches wide, and one-eighth of an inch thick, on which were engraved characters or hieroglyphics. Now, a lot of people try to give dimensions of the plates. The only person who gives those dimensions of the plates like that is Joseph Smith. Gives those dimensions that it's that it's six inches by eight inches by one eighth of an inch thick. Again, Hadley can't take this from some other published source. There's only one source, and it's Joseph Smith at this point. And he's saying that he's talking to Joseph Smith about it. This is what he says. As he continues, again, notice how this very, very early source corresponds with what Emma and Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and Joseph Knight Sr. later said. By placing the spectacles into a hat and looking into it, Smith could, and then he puts in parentheses, he said so at least, interpret these characters. So the description of the translation from this, our earliest source, from this conversation with Joseph Smith is the same description that you have from our latest source 
which is David Whitmer explaining the step-by-step of translation. This antagonistic source is saying the same thing that the very pro-Joseph Smith source of Emma Smith and Martin Harris is saying. Joseph Knight Sr., who wrote this in his own account that you know, didn't even come to light for decades and decades later, is saying the same thing as this earliest account. And that's part of the reason why, as a historian, you say, well, clearly, all of our accounts of translation are early ones, are late ones, are antagonistic ones, are pro-Joseph ones. They're all essentially saying the same thing. That means I can put it down pretty, with pretty good veracity that probably the way that Joseph translated is he placed stones into a hat and then the words of the translation appeared on that stone. At least that's how this early translation is being described by Joseph, by Oliver Cowdery, by Emma Smith, by Martin Harris, by David Whitmer. That This is how they're describing it. Now, there's a lot more to Jonathan Hadley's account, just to show you how much he knows about this. And again, he can't get this from any other place than Joseph and Martin himself. I mean, th- themselves, because there, there's no other source available. He goes on, quote, an account of this discovery was soon circulated. The subject was almost invariably treated as it should have been with contempt. And he has that italicized. A few, however, believe the golden story. He has that in quotes. Among them was Martin Harris, an honest and industrious farmer of this town. So notice that the entire point of this article is to actually attack the gold Bible and the people who believe it. And even though that's the plan, even Hadley knows that everyone knows Martin Harris as an honest and an industrious guy. So instead of saying, Martin Harris, that obvious liar who lies to everything about everyone and every, he's just a liar, right? That guy. Hadley doesn't really feel like he needs to say Martin Harris is a liar, right? Because look, no one's going to believe this. Martin Harris is the only one ever believed him. He says, so blindly enthusiastic was Harris that he took some of the characters interpreted by Smith and went in search of someone besides the interpreter who was learned enough to English them. Somehow, Hadley knows all about the story of Martin Harris taking the, the characters to scholars in the East. But all to whom he applied, among them uh, of the number was Professor Mitchell of New York, uh, Mitchell is a, is a very eminent uh, professor. People know about him. That's the reason why Hadley can name drop him. That's one of the people that Martin Harris takes the characters to. All of, the, all of whom he applied happened not to be possessed of sufficient knowledge to give satisfaction. Harris returned and set Smith to work interpreting the Bible. He has at length performed the task, and the work is soon to be put to press in this village. Its language and doctrines are said to be far superior to those of the Book of Life, and it's three exclamation points there. Now, part of what he's doing there is he's trying to demonstrate how ridiculous this idea is. That Harris took characters from the plates, and that the great Professor Mitchell couldn't read them, but that somehow Joseph could, is all part of the sarcasm that he's building up to. He continues, Now it appears not a little strange that there should have been deposited in this western world and in the secluded town of Manchester too a record of this description. 
and still more so, that a person like this Smith, and then he has in parentheses, very illiterate, should have been gifted by inspiration to find and interpret it. The reality is, for Hadley, he he already knows that there's no possible way that some work similar to the Bible could be produced by Joseph Smith because Joseph Smith is, you know, very illiterate. And in fact, he goes on, it should and it doubtless will be treated with the neglect it merits. The public should not be imposed upon by this work pronounced as it is by its proselytes to be superior in style and more advantageous mankind to mankind than the Bible, than the Holy Bible. Before there is a Book of Mormon, there's no point in attacking Joseph Smith's character or Martin Harris's character. There's no point in describing all of the terrible, lecherous things that are going to be assigned to them. The reality is, as Hadley states, he expects that nobody is going to listen to this. In fact, nobody but Martin Harris has listened to it yet that he knows of. Hadley doesn't seem to be aware that there's people down in Colesville who who also believe this. The reality is, nobody believes. And of course, no one's going to believe. But Hadley's dealing with a reality in which the Book of Mormon text doesn't actually exist. Like I said, there's no fear that your neighbor is going to become a Mormon because the story itself is ridiculous. He doesn't feel like he has to make fun of Joseph and and attack him as having a terrible character and being well known as a liar and all this other stuff. Because for Hadley, he believes the story itself told the way that it is told by believers by Joseph is so fantastical that no honest thinking, intelligent person is going to believe it. Only superstitious individuals would believe it. And that's what's cool about this earliest antagonistic writing. The story itself is so ridiculous that you assume that no one's going to believe it. And it's almost like Hadley's like, you know, slapping his hands together and dusting them off. Like, you know, just, well, he says he saw an angel folks and that's it. I mean, do I need to tell you more than this? He says he saw an angel. He says that, that he, he found gold plates behind his house. Hadley doesn't think that anything beyond the story itself is even necessary to dismiss it because he's writing before there are dozens or hundreds or thousands of Latter-day Saints. Before there is a Book of Mormon, in Hadley's world, it's impossible to believe that anyone could ever even think that this story is true. It's certainly impossible that the very illiterate Joseph Smith could have somehow produced a book like the Bible, and he's able to make that that commentary because there isn't a Book of Mormon yet. That kind of criticism is going to change once there is a Book of Mormon, and there is a church, and there are dozens, and then hundreds, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands of people who not only believe that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, but they believe that that very illiterate Joseph Smith is a prophet that that translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God.
early on, the dismissal is one of no one could possibly believe this. And you can see why. He doesn't feel like he needs to embellish this at all. In fact, the story he tells us pretty good, right? He even knows the angel appears three times. He knows the dimensions of the plates. He knows that Joseph Smith called the, the, the seer stone spectacles. He knows that he placed the spectacles in the hat. He knows all kinds of things. But he assumes that anyone reading the story will, just like him, completely discount it. And, you know, a Latter-day Saint reading what he has to say might say, well, he's doing a better job explaining it than, than my, my 15-year-old was in family meeting. I mean, he's he actually has most of the parts of the story there. But he dismisses the that Joseph Smith could have been the author by saying he was very illiterate. It's interesting because, in a way, like you said, prior to him... Uh, to the production of the Book of Mormon, he can say these things because he doesn't believe that there is going to be anything. This whole thing is preposterous. This whole thing is ridiculous. For him to be able to say that he's very illiterate, what what he ends up kind of doing is saying that this had to have come by some other means, that Joseph can't produce it. Then once the book is produced, people that then believe in the book and look to that to say, yeah, we agree with you. Yeah, I mean, so he ends up, you know, without meaning to providing later people with kind of an explanation for the the fact that this is a miracle. I mean, I think what he means when he says that is, you know, because the book doesn't exist, his assumption is that, look, I don't know what he's going to try to put forward of having, you know, translated from God, but I know it's not going to be like the Bible, right? That, that, I think that he's... So there may be something, but it's not going to be... Yeah, gonna be. I mean, look, you're trying to tell me... And, and so maybe that will lead into you know the later questions of, well, he must have got it from somewhere else. And that's exactly the trajectory that it takes. In a later podcast, we'll talk about the trajectory of early antagonism, and especially as it relates to the Book of Mormon. Um, but for our purposes here, I just want to talk more about this earliest uh, record of the translation, which is similar to, equal to, these other accounts of the witnesses. So if we're talking about these early accounts, uh, one of the things that we started the first podcast with in the translation of, and then you've discussed here, is this idea of how the translation happens, that a stone and a hat, um, and and why it was, why is it actually that we didn't necessarily learn about the translation that way? It doesn't seem like until really the Joseph Smith papers and relatively recently that this thing has been brought up. But you're citing references to David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery and all of these things. Why haven't we talked about that until fairly recently? So uh, that's a pretty involved explanation. I don't know all the people involved, so I wouldn't be able to say exactly why you know this is taught or this isn't. But I can certainly say these sources, many of them have been known for a long time. But some of them, you know, were were kind of rejected out of hand because, for instance, David Whitmer describes how the translation took place, but David Whitmer was also an apostate. So you can see why someone in an earlier era might question what it is that David Whitmer says. They personally have in their mind the type of translation that you know the way they think of it and they think of it as you know joseph smith with the plates in front of him and his hand on the plates and no stones involved because there's no images showing that right and so they know that antagonists of the church 
men like Eber Howe, who publishes Mormonism Unveiled, they make a mockery of the idea that Joseph placed these stones in the hat to translate. And so I think that part of what goes on in an earlier era is when people like David Whitmer or Emma Smith, their, their accounts come to light, which describe the translation process, they are often rejected and cast aside because A, they're coming from people that are apostates, and B, they don't fit what we already think should be the case. Sometimes our assumptions actually affect the way we interpret new sources. Uh, an example of this, which will probably be a much longer example than I should spend any time on, but you know, welcome to Overdrive on the podcast, I guess, is Doctrine and Covenants section 49. Doctrine and Covenants section 49 which, which we'll talk about, actually, uh, the doctrine surrounding it in a future podcast as well. It, um, it, this seems like it's a minor thing, but to try to illustrate the point, it was misdated originally in the Doctrine and Covenants. It was given a March 1831 date, but that date was wrong. It was actually always wrong. Um, in fact, when they published it in the church newspaper, they published it with the correct May date. But when they, when they used uh, the, the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, to write the history of the church, they plugged in exactly what was in the Doctrine and Covenants into the history of the church, thus preserving the incorrect March date, which is like a typo, right? Well, every Doctrine and Covenants commentary ever written after that simply maintained the March 1831 date of DNC 49. Even people involved in the source, like Parley Pratt, would look back on the source, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, and they would take the incorrect March date at its face value. Well, I mean, it says March, it was 20 years ago. I mean, I don't even know, you know, when my family went on their last vacation from this year. Like, I can't even tell you the week, let alone the month, right? I mean, the, the reality is it's hard to reminisce back. And so when you have a date in front of you, you always just assume it's correct. Well, so many times had people said this was a March date, even though there was good evidence that it was actually a May date, like early publications saying that it was May, that when they finally found researchers, Latter-day Saint researchers found early Shaker documents that showed that it was actually a May revelation that had a date on it of May, the, the, this copy that the Shakers had that was given to them by these early missionaries in Doctrine and Covenants section 49, that the Latter-day Saint researcher who found it kind of, you know, in his copy wrote over the top of it, should be March, right? So, so because he was so certain that it was March, because that's what all the other dates said, that even when he was presented with a different source, instead of saying, huh, I wonder if I wonder if it might be a May date that this should really be. No, he instead defaulted to, no, that's wrong. It has to be what I already thought. And that's actually human nature. That's called normal. That's natural. It's natural when you've got a problem with David Whitmer because he's making all kinds of attacks on the Utah church to read something from him that comes across as unfamiliar to you. 
that the seer stones were placed in a hat and that words appeared on the stones. To simply dismiss that as, here's another crazy, crappy thing that David Whitmer did. But that's not how historians use sources. Historians take the intent of the source. They take uh, the purpose of it. They determine whether or not there are multiple independent attestations of the same thing. And if you think about it the other way around, think about how crazy it would have to be, right? So Emma Smith and David Whitmer and Joseph Knight and Oliver Cowdery, all of these people are all well aware that Jonathan Hadley attacked Joseph Smith in this newspaper, and so did Eber Howe in Mormonism Unveiled, and so did many other antagonists of the church who made fun of him for saying that he placed stones in a hat to translate, and yet all of these people, some of them still members of the church like Joseph Knight, instead of explaining how the translation actually occurred, instead of giving their actual explanation of it as they tried to defend Joseph simply repeated the same thing that anti-Mormons were saying. I mean, frankly, it's a ridiculous argument uh, from the historical perspective. In fact, everyone's saying that Joseph Smith used seer stones and that he placed them into a hat. The problem is anti-Mormons were making fun of it so badly that you can see why later, uh, uh, later Latter-day Saints encountering this more unfamiliar idea have a problem with it. Now, part of the problem is just terminology. I mean, you you might even be saying to yourself, I don't understand why they're calling them spectacles. Um, it's Urim and Thummim. In fact, before I got into studying this, my assumption was there were two stones found in the box. Well, this one on the left must have been called Urim, and this one on the right must have been called Thummim. You know, they both had names. This is Urim, this is Thummim, and that's why there's two stones. But we actually see a transition in terminologies. And in, in fact, it's part and parcel because of the mocking that's being done by antagonists, right? Uh, these antagonists are making fun of the miraculous. Uh, they, they are making fun of the fact that Joseph is translating by the use of these stones. And so it's in late 18, early 1833, in the evening and morning star, that W.W. Phelps actually, he, he describes uh, the Book of Mormon and what it is, and then explains this kind of transition away from interpreters or spectacles to the biblical term of Urim and Thummim. Um, the Book of Mormon, as a revelation from God, possesses uh, some advantage over the old scripture. It has not been uh, tinctured by the wisdom of man with here and there, uh, you know, as, he, as he's describing the Book of Mormon and its lack of deficiencies, he'll go on to say, it was translated by the gift and power of God. Remember, that's how Joseph described it. By an unlearned man through the, the air. Sorry. <laughs> it was translated by the gift and power of God by an unlearned man through the aid of a pair of interpreters or spectacles known perhaps in ancient days as teraphim or urim and thummim. So, He's actually making this connection now between the words, the biblical phrase. You know, biblical Urim and Thummim are these stones used by the high priest in Israel to aid him in the receipt of revelation. Exactly how, you know, that's a huge scholarly debate. But they actually make this conscious decision that instead of, uh, of calling them interpreters or calling them spectacles, 
that they're going to start using this biblical terminology, Urim and Thummim. Well, that's what they start to call all seer stones. And in fact, every Latter-day Saint listening to this already knows that Urim and Thummim is actually a generic term for a seer stone. They just don't know that they know it. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I were to ask you the question, what is the planet like on the world that God resides? You would say it's a giant Urim and Thummim. You mean the very ones found in the box by Joseph? No, no, it's it's a planet. It's something different. Okay. Well, what's everyone going to get when they go to the celestial kingdom? They're going to get their own Urim and Thummim. The very ones in the box? No, obviously a different stone. What's this world going to be like in its glorified, sanctified, immortal state? A giant Urim and Thummim, right? Joseph is using the term Urim and Thummim in those Doctrine and Covenants uh, sections in a generic way. Urim and Thummim means holy seer stone. That's what it means to Joseph. And so that makes part of discerning what's going on a little bit difficult because when we say, well, how come I've never heard about the separate seer stone? Well, part of the reason why you haven't heard about it is by the time they're writing histories about the translation, they're using the word Urim and Thummim to mean any seer stone. And in fact, in Wilford Woodruff's journal, in 1841, late 1841, he's all kinds of excited because Joseph Smith shows him a seer stone, a single separate seer stone. And what does Joseph call it when he shows it to him? He says, this is Urim and Thummim, right? The single stone. So it demonstrates that Joseph Smith is using this terminology to describe any seer stone, not just simply uh, the ones found in the box. And that can sometimes cause a bit of, of confusion. Further than that, there, there are places where people could learn about these things. I mean, it's true that this is not, you know, the mechanics of the translation of the Book of Mormon are not part of your standard, you know, CTRB curriculum, right? Or they weren't. But there's, a, there's several things that have gone on with that. First, uh, we, we, didn't have, uh, we didn't have as much information as we do now. Right? We, we certainly have many more sources on translation now than we used to have. But even despite that, long before there was a Joseph Smith Papers, Pres- President Nelson, although he was Elder Nelson at the time, he does, in, a, in an address to mission presidents in 1992, not only talks about the translation of the Book of Mormon, but he's going to quote David Whitmer's account of placing the seer stone into a hat and closing the, the, the hat around his face. Now, that's published in the 1993, July 1993 enzyme. The details of this miraculous method of translation are still not fully known, yet we do have a few precious insights. This is, this is how President Nelson, I know he was just Elder Nelson at the time, but he's now our prophet. This is how President Nelson described it. These are precious insights. David Whitmer wrote, Joseph Smith would put a seer stone into a hat and put his face into a hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in the darkness, the, spirit, the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling a parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off that English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character would appear another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus was the Book of Mormon translated by the gift and power of God, not by any power of man. 
in his talk, which is then published in the Enzyme, President Nelson quotes all of it. So while it may not have been actively taught, it's certainly not being hidden. Now, now someone might say, well, you know, I asked my, I asked my seminary teacher about it in, in 1984, and he didn't seem to know anything about it. That's true. That, that, that individuals might not have known about it, but the church is making greater efforts to help people understand all aspects of their history, not just this one, but now the church is making great efforts to try to help people better understand this. For instance, there's the Gospel Topics essay on Book of Mormon translation, which is on your Gospel Library app. If you go there and go under church history, you'll see Gospel Topics essays, or it's on churchofjesuschrist.org. You can find these essays which describe all of these sources. They give a full explanation of it. But even beyond that, we have uh, uh, articles that are being published, such as the April 2020 New Era. Uh, in April 2020, uh, the question is, how did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon? This is the answer that's on there. Joseph Smith dictated the words of translation describes mostly Oliver Cowdery. Because Joseph was translating a completely unknown language, he needed to rely on the Lord. One way the Lord helped was to provide physical instruments to aid Joseph in translating. Witnesses said Joseph looked into the instruments and that words appeared to him in English. The translation instruments included the interpreters, or Urim and Thummim, two clear stones fastened into a metal rim so that Joseph could look through them. These had been given to Joseph along with the plates. Another instrument Joseph used was a seer stone that he would look into, often by placing it in a hat. Joseph had found this stone earlier and had used it to find hidden or lost things. He used both the interpreters and the seer stone as he translated, always relying on the inspiration of heaven. Well, that's a pretty good explanation. Actually, you're probably thinking, why did I listen to two podcasts? Because I could have just read the April 2020 New Era that very concisely using these sources describes it. Um, similarly, in the Latter-day Saint History uh, uh, Manual, so this is in the, in the Institute Manual. Um, so if someone's doing, going to Adult Institute, if you take a church history course that covers 1815 to 1846, this is exactly uh, how it's described. And this is in our curriculum now. So this is what's being taught to people who want to learn more. Some later historical accounts from individuals who were present while Joseph translated, including Emma Smith and Martin Harris, indicate that Joseph sometimes used another instrument to translate the Book of Mormon. This instrument was a small oval stone referred to as a seer stone that Joseph discovered several years before he obtained the gold plates. These accounts indicate that Joseph would place either the interpreters or the seer stone into a hat to block out the light, which allowed him to better see the words that appeared on that instrument. Um, even further, if you go to uh, the Come Follow uh, Me on the Book of Mormon, uh, this is the, the, the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. This was the December 30th to January 5th lesson in the Book of Mormon manual. Again, the newly produced manual. The translation of the Book of Mormon, A Marvel and a Wonder by Elder LeGrand R. Curtis Jr. He's the General Authority 70 and Church Historian and Recorder. He was at the time and he still is. And he gives that example. All of us who have tried to read illuminated words on a screen can understand why Joseph would have used a hat or something else to screen out the extraneous light when he was reading the words off the seer stone. And in fact, even if you go to um, 
the Doctrinal Mastery, Doctrine and Covenants and Church History Teacher Manual, the explanation is this was a small oval stone referred to as a seer stone that he discovered several years before he obtained the golden plates. These accounts indicate that Joseph would sometimes place either the interpreters or the seer stone into a hat to block out the light, which allowed him to see the words that appeared on that instrument. So what do you find is that now that there's a, a greater understanding of this, it's not just a, an Enzyme article from Elder Maxwell uh, in, in 1997 or a, a, an Enzyme article from our, our current prophet, El, you know, uh, Elder Nelson um, in, in 1993. It's being integrated into the church's curriculum so that people can understand this. Now, you know, the, the reality is we don't know everything. And, and, and sometimes the fact that we don't know things, we allow antagonists of our faith to say, well, if you don't know this thing, then that proves you don't actually have any faith or testimony. Well, this is preposterous, of course, right? The reality is someone who is illiterate can have the Holy Spirit of God tell them that Joseph Smith is a prophet. Tell them that Jesus is the Savior. You don't have to be educated to have the Holy Spirit of God speak to you. At the same time, you can't know everything all at once. Joseph Smith didn't know everything all at once. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes from Brigham Young uh, is his description of how revelation and learning actually comes to us. The Lord can't reveal to you and I that that we can't understand. For instance, when Joseph first received revelation, the Lord could not tell him what he was going to do. He didn't tell him he was going to call him to be a prophet, seer, revelator, high priest, and founder of the kingdom of God on earth. Joseph would have said, just what does that mean? You are talking that I can't understand. I mean, imagine Joseph in, in the garden, I mean, in the, in the grove, in the sacred grove, and, and there's God and Jesus appear to him, and they begin to tell him, you know, all of the things they're going to have him do. Joseph just found out that God and Jesus answer prayers. That's a little bit too heavy to just move right into, by the way, this is how you're going to pass the sacrament. I mean, God allows Joseph to learn a bit at a time. As Brigham Young continues, he could merely reveal to him that the Lord was pleased to bless him and to forgive his sins and that there was a work for him to perform on earth. And that's about all he could reveal. The first time he sent an angel to visit him, he could then lead his mind a little further. He could reveal to him there were certain records deposited in the earth to be brought forth for the benefit of the inhabitants of the earth. He could reveal after this that Joseph could get them. Notice that those are even two revelations. That plates exists and that Joseph can get them aren't even the same thing. Back to Brigham. Then he could reveal that he should have power to translate the records from the language and characters in which it was written and give it to the people in the English language. But this was not taught him at first. He could then tell him that he was called to be that he was to be called a prophet. He could then reveal that Joseph, to Joseph that he might take Oliver Cowdery into the water and baptize him and ordain him to the priesthood. After this, he could tell him that he could receive the high priesthood, organize the church, and so on. This is the way the Lord has to instruct all people at uh, on upon the earth. I make mention of this to show you that the Lord can't teach all things to people at once. He gives a little here, a little there, revelation upon revelation on revelation after revelation, a precept today, tomorrow another, the next day another. 
If the people make good use of it and improve upon what the Lord gives them, then he's ready to bestow more. There are various reasons why you might not have heard about the translation of the Book of Mormon in this way in the past. We have a different way of uh, producing curriculum. We have uh, many more historians working on documents in a professionalized way in the history department. You have the Joseph Smith Papers, which job it was is to create an academic uh, an account of, of this early period of Joseph's life, including the translation. So I think it's really important that we don't confuse the fact that we don't know about a thing or that that thing seems uh, unfamiliar to us with that thing being wrong. That, that's, that's one of the great, the great tricks of people who are antagonists of our faith. They want you to say, want to say, oh, let me tell you something obscure about your faith or your history that you don't know, that you think you should have known. And then on the basis of the fact that you don't know, I'll tell you that everything else you believe must be a lie. The reality is our discomfort with some of these things are simply because we haven't heard about them before. As I demonstrated, the church is undertaking all kinds of efforts to help people understand them, but that will be a process that people will have to learn and grow as they put forth effort. And as odd as it might seem, you know, uh, to you to think, well, I just never thought of the translation as, as words appearing on a stone. Think about 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 28. This is the discussion of Nephi and the Leahona. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the pointers which were in the ball, that they did give, that they did work according to the faith and diligence and heed which we did give unto them. And there was also written upon them a new writing, which was plain to be read, which had given understanding concerning the ways of the Lord, and it was written and changed from time to time, according to the faith and diligence which we gave unto it. And thus we see by small means the Lord can bring about great things. Now we've all read that account of the Leahona. The account of words appearing on these brass spindles of this brass ball that appeared outside of, of Lehi's tent. And not one of us have ever had a faith crisis because the Leahona existed, because words appeared on the spindles in the Leahona. And the reason why is that it's familiar to us. We, we've read it many times. Not only are we not troubled in our faith by the Leahona, the fact that God could write words on a physical instrument. It's actually one of the things we love to believe about Nephi's story. The wonderful idea that this small and simple thing God can use to lead us to do great things. The translation of the Book of Mormon, however it took place, is a miracle. And you only need to read it to know that. Maybe you're listening and thinking, well, that's not how I want to think about the translation. If you don't want to think about the translation that way, you don't have to. But what we do have to recognize is that the text that Joseph Smith produces through that, that translation process is absolutely outside of his own abilities. I have read Joseph Smith's writings, his letters from the time period, the, the accounts of the sermons that he's given, the journal entries that he makes years later. And the Book of Mormon is clearly, completely, beyond Joseph Smith's writing abilities, which is exactly what Emma says when she's working on it with him. 
She says it was a marvel to me as much as it was to anyone else. Because here she is sitting across from her, you know, only fairly literate husband as he proceeds to unfold things that are so spectacular that they could only come from God. And that's what I hope everyone listening listening to this podcast does. I hope that if they have questions about the translation, well, here's some sources now that you can go read them. But ultimately, whether or not the Book of Mormon is the Word of God is something that only one source can tell you. Only God, through the Holy Spirit of God, can tell you that this is the Word of God. And if you have that assurance, if you have felt the Holy Spirit speak to you to say, these really are the words of Christ, then how the book was translated may not matter as much. Maybe these two podcasts are more of a kind of FYI, a little bit of Mormon uh, jeopardy for you. The real thing that matters is that the Book of Mormon is Scripture, that it was written by ancient prophets, that it was translated by a modern prophet, Joseph Smith, and that as he said, a man can get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than they can by any other book. Anyone who has read the Book of Mormon and diligently tried to apply the teachings in it to their life has become a better person. They can feel the power of God resting on them as they come to know their Savior, as they come to know the teachings of Christ. And so I think that's the most important takeaway of any discussion of translation is this book is from God. The miracle of the book is that the book exists at all. And it's just an even greater miracle to learn how it is that God had prepared thousands of years earlier to prepare these stones and these writings for Joseph Smith to translate them in our day. It is a marvelous work and and a wonder to be sure. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.